Bonjour. <laughs> um, guten Tag? Is that German? Hello, and welcome to The Librarian is In, the New York Public Library's podcast about books, culture, and what to read next. I'm Frank. I'm Crystal. Hi. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi, hello. Here we are. Podcast um, a little later in the day, so I'm. I need this caffeine. Yeah. I know. We we just did like a caffeine run, and I was thinking coffee is such a crutch sometimes. Like I don't really need more coffee, but the idea that it's there makes me feel like I can get through life. Mm. The next mm-hmm. ten minutes. For the next ten minutes, we can handle that. <laughs> oh, it's a great song actually from the musical the last five years yeah oh okay who's in that it was, a, it was an off-broadway show and then it became a movie with anna kendrick okay really good it's all sung it's about a breakup it's about a, I, i've talked about this before it's about a breakup because i was obsessed with it when it first came out mm-hmm. and it goes forward in time with her point of view and backwards in time mm-hmm. with his point of view until they both meet. Okay. So alternating scenes are her view, his view. So her view starts off mm-hmm. at the end of the relationship. His view starts at the beginning and then they progress and they meet in the middle and then tears ensue at the end. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't that's- know that there was this uh, weird time element to it. That actually makes me more inclined to watch it. Yeah. Like weird, weird timelines. And they each have a song that, it's almost all sung. Um, mm-hmm. They tell their part of the story, um, but that's that song. The next ten minutes, that line. The next ten minutes, we can handle that because he's basically basically saying to her, you know, we can handle emotionally our next ten minutes, and then if we get through the next ten minutes, can I ask you for another ten minutes? It's just, it's mm-hmm. sort of like this: um, how difficult relationships are and, and emotions and. And he's just having the moment where he's saying, like, just get through the next 10 minutes. It's so sweet. It makes me cry. Because boy, do I know it's hard to get through the next 10 minutes, especially with you. <laughs> I know. The next 30 to 45 minutes. You know, really. Well, if I can rein it in a little bit. One of these days when we meet in person, it has to happen. Again, our cues will be such that we won't talk on and on as we do. Or I do. Really. I like it. I like just rambling about. You're so sweet. Do you, have you gone and seen a musical in person yet? Yes, I saw Hades. You Town. have. Okay, how was it? I saw Hades Town. It was great, and it's it's coinky dinky Mc McFlinky. Um, it's mm-hmm. a musical based on the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. Okay where Orpheus has to descend to the underworld to to retrieve Mm -hmm. the love of his life, Eurydice. And the book I read for today is also a book based on a Greek myth. (laughs) (laughs) Coink! Not really, because I'm sort of obsessed with it, but there you go. I mean, maybe I did go to this book because I saw the the show on Broadway. Mm -hmm. I do, as you well know, and the listeners do, because they hang on my every word, um, love Greek myths and stories that are retold from them. I just, I think I also mentioned this because my memory is gone, 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 gone. Um, I did a display at the library I'm currently working at before Jefferson Market opens on myths retold mm-hmm. and put on display like Circe, um, Autobiography of Red, those books like that, that um, current authors are retelling classic myths. Mm-hmm. Never get old. So actually, well, here we are. <laughs> so I was working at that library and a colleague of mine recommended the book I read, which which um, is a book called Till We Have Faces. A Myth mm-hmm. Retold is the, the um, subtitle by C.S. Lewis. 
Okay. Uh, now you know, you must know C.S. Lewis, my darling. The what? The Lion, the Witch, yeah. and the Wardrobe? Yeah. I was wondering if you, if I, when I said that, C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. you'd be like, <gasps> and have a story about the Narnia Chronicles. I was not a Narnia kid, so. Well, yeah. you know, I read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's the only one I read of the trilogy, I guess. Mm -hmm. Four of the Narnia Chronicles. And I remember as a kid putting it down and thinking, well, it was no wrinkle in time. Because I love well, I'm a wrinkle in time kid, yes. I never read C.S. Lewis since. And mm -hmm. I know he has like a I don't know a lot about him, but I know he was an Oxford professor and he mm -hmm. he um um converted to Christianity at 30? Like later. He okay. was an atheist and then became Christian, and so a lot of his work is has a lot of Christian themes. Mm -hmm. So I just never returned. And then this colleague was like, well, did you know one of my favorite books is about myths that are retold called Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. And it's a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth. Mm -hmm. Do you know that myth, my darling? <laughs> I think I do, but yeah. I could be wrong. Was it the one where he was coming to the bedchamber at night and she couldn't see his face? In yes. The okay. Yeah. Look at Crystal. I look, I only know these. I only know these um, myths because I was convinced by some colleagues to read, I think Katie Roberts, like romance retellings of a lot of like myths, which some are all right. But um, I think that maybe came up in it. What is it, possibly. Katie Roberts? I think so. It's like Ooh. romance erotica or something. And I don't know the first what. The first one was called is Escape Me. I'll have to look it up. Katie Roberts. Okay. Right. So Cupid and Psyche. So Cupid and Psyche, the myth, like from Edith Hamilton and other sources, um, is, of course, Psyche is a princess, the youngest of three daughters, mm -hmm. who is, of course, gorgeous beyond belief. And Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, is just like, uh-uh, no, not on my watch. No one more beautiful than me. Uh-uh, no. You know, the gods can be petty and vengeful. So she's like, we got to do something about this beautiful girl because I got to be the only star here, baby. And so she tells her <laughs> son, Cupid, or Eros, the god of love, mm -hmm. you need to deal with this. <laughs> you need to get this girl... I, now I forgot for a second because the the retelling is a little different. Um, get her, tie her up, have her be devoured by a giant winged serpent or something. I mean, mm -hmm. punish her violently and horribly just because she's pretty. So, or Aphrodite thinks so. So then Cube, Psyche is just like, I'm living my life, loving it and loving it. Mm -hmm. But then Cupid grabs her. and But of course, what happens? he falls in love with her because she's so beautiful mm -hmm. and it's weird that Aphrodite didn't sort of see this I guess she was like you're my son you'll do whatever I say and we have a very mm -hmm. entangled relationship as it is so he does and so he takes her to his palace and um but he doesn't let her see him because if Psyche sees Cupid she'll know he's a god and the jig will be up so she just says, we will be in love forever, but you can't ever see me. So he comes to her at night and blah, blah, blah. So she's very happy. All right. <laughs> I'm like, let's not judge here, even though it sounds a little dicey. Um, and then uh, Psyche's sisters, two other princesses come to visit. And they're like, oh, lovely palace. Hmm, better than mine. I married a prince and it's not anywhere near. And they're like all petty and evil and horrible. And they're just like, ha ha. So when they leave, they're like, sister to sister like we got to bring psyche down this ain't this ain't working mm -hmm. so they tell psyche you know what you're probably sleeping with this crazy maniac who's gonna kill you and or a nutcase or i don't know whatever some terrible thing some murderer um so you need to light a lamp and take a look at this dude and figure mm -hmm. out what's happening with, with just see him and they leave and i guess they're intending that it, she will be killed by him. Uh, now I can't remember the missile. It's the thing about myths too. They they give you these great driven plots, but they don't really get psychologically deep or motive 
deep. A lot mm -hmm. of it's just like, oh, Aphrodite changed her mind and everything's fine. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, so. And they, sh they shift a lot with the different people who are telling the stories, which is absolutely. kind of the great things about this. Exactly. So um, Psyche does come into the bedchamber and with a gas, an oil lamp and sees Eros and she's like, oh my God, he's gorgeous. He's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. She's like, I'm so happy. And then some of the oil in the lamp spills on Cupid and Eros and he wakes up and goes, you looked at me and he flees. And then Psyche's pitched into a lifetime of torment and punishment. And that's sort of the myth. And then the Till We Have Faces is a retelling of that myth. And what do you think C.S. Lewis does in his retelling? He retells the story of Cupid and Psyche from the point of view of one of those sisters. Okay, interesting. That's kind of like the um, Chosen and the Beautiful, right? Where it was like right, the like, main character, the side character. Yeah. Jordan Baker um, and Great Gatsby. So because C.S. Lewis, I think, was like, why were they so mean? Why were they so awful to Psyche? When so just, mm -hmm. you know, you could accept, oh, they're just jealous and they're not nice. But he was curious about that and wanted to investigate it. So he basically tells the story um, through the eyes of the oldest sister, who's mm -hmm. named Oroal, or Oriol, O-R-U-A-L, Orul, Oriol, Oral. I've heard it pronounced different ways. So Oriel, and she tells a story and she's apparently in this, the words of the story, very unattractive and ugly, whatever. I, every time I see the word ugly, I'm always like, what does that really mean? Um, but you know, the king, her father treats her like horrible. He's just like, yeah, your face is pretty rotten to the core, like yuck. And then pulls her hair and is just not a nice guy. He's a complete tyrant. I mean, talk about world building. I mean, this was written in 1956. And in the first 20 pages, you get sexism, looksism, ageism, this slave slavery. I mean, the king, one of the young boy slaves, right there, mm -hmm. slavery, um, drops something in his chamber and the king just stabs him to death. Like well, he actually just goes with a knife and the, the boy drops dead. And that's just like to show what a tyrant he is in the book. But like when I was reading it, I was like all these issues like flying in my face that we discussed today about what slavery and equal rights and, and human mm -hmm. rights. And right away, it's just like an awful world that exists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Does C.S. Lewis kind of address those issues at all or just kind of puts them out there? See, that's an interesting thing. I mean, Orwell is a princess and she does become mm -hmm. queen and she's very powerful. So there is, there is that, but a lot of these, the slavery issue and a lot of other issues are not. It's, I did think of that by the end of it, because what the message of the book was when I read it and thought about it, I was like, how would that translate to today? And I was like, C.S. Lewis and the Greeks too, or the ancients just looked at in some ways, I'm sure, sure not ever, no, wait, not everyone thought the same thing. There were a lot of people against these things. Not everyone was like, yeah, slavery is what it is. But they, there were people who didn't believe in it and thought it was wrong from the beginning of time, but also from the beginning of time, slavery existed. So he doesn't question it. It's like very hierarchical. And I did think about how myths are often told with um, aristocracy. They're usually like princesses and kings. And I, I think maybe for the audience, it was just like we like we watch Real Housewives. It's like you watch mm -hmm. rich people do crazy things and learn from them. Um, the regular peasant, so-called, is not involved until later. Um, yeah, that's an interesting thing. I mean, I think the hierarchy is so observed that not everyone is considered equal. I mean, but yet in the book, um, well, yeah, the, actually the king himself, I don't think he used to like the king at all. Um, and Oriel, when she's queen, does does be some slaves for what it's worth. Mm -hmm. um, he does, someone, a philosopher at one point says, um, but king, we're all of one blood. And the king says, I would hope not. Like, I hope we're different. Like, I, you know, because you're a slave. And that philosopher actually who teaches Oriol and her sisters is a Greek slave. And it, mm -hmm. it's mentioned later that he says, well, I was a pretty you know, 
fairly well-known guy in Greece. And I guess my children have forgotten all about me, like, because he became enslaved and from a war and now is a slave in this northern, north of Greece country, unnamed. Or it's called Glome, but it's fictionalized. So anyway, that yeah, there is all that for sure. So the story, um, so Oral Oriol is the oldest of the sisters and Psyche is the youngest and the middle is red of all. So Psyche is born and beautiful and lovely and you know, Psyche means soul in the ancient Greek, and she's just like pure love and selflessness. And Oriel just falls in love with her, her youngest sister, and becomes like a mother. Their mother is dead. And the king is just the nasty old king. So she becomes fixated on Psyche as a love, as, as the love of her life. Like she's a mother, mm-hmm. she's a sister, she's a caretaker, and she delights in every aspect of Psyche. Um, and then various things happen in the kingdom, which are very interesting politically to watch and very relatable to today. Like there's much is made of the mob mentality of the, of the village, like the kingdom, which you can totally equate to Twitter about how everyone's like, well, the king had three daughters. There's no son. Again, here's this, that, that business. Um, so he must be like, you know, inadequate. So we're going to be like "Eh," against him. And then always what happens in myths and these ancient stories is when something goes wrong in a kingdom, the king decides to do what? Sacrifice. Someone's got to be sacrificed because the public will wants blood. So there's a bunch of events that happen, but ultimately Psyche is the one that is going to be chained up. And always, always a daughter. Why? I know, right? It's never like you know the sort of indifferent-looking middle son. <laughs> it's always like the beautiful, <laughs> virginal girl. <sighs> yeah, well, there's tropes in there. See, like myths bring up a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So she's gonna, and she's of course, Psyche's just like, of course I'll go. I'll sacrifice myself because that's the way it should be, and I'm selfless and loving. And I'll do it. For, I'll take one for the team, said Psyche. Mm-hmm. So she goes, and then, like the older myth, um, Cupid, she's going to be sacrificed to this, what everyone thinks is a horrible beast, but it's Cupid. And she's like, yay. And then she's taken off. And then the sister sisters come to visit. And um, how it div- gets more psychologically in depth here is that Orwell um, doesn't, doesn't see... Um, the splendor C.S. Lewis changes this doesn't see the splendor of Cupid's palace. She meets Psyche who tells her about it. So Orwell doesn't believe Psyche. She's, or if she believes her, she's like, she's gotta be deranged. Like something's wrong here. Like she can't be so happy and in love with this guy. She can't see she's cause that, that stays the same in the myth. And so she can't see it. So she, but she just doesn't believe it. And she's just like, you're, this is not going to stand. And so she basically advises her, like, you know, get an oil lamp and see what this guy's about. He's going to kill you at night. He just can't be good. This cannot be a good thing. And then the same thing happens. The oil spills on him. He sees that Psyche, Cupid sees that Psyche has seen him and he flees. And then a lot of the narrative begins. And what ultimately happens, and I'm going to spoil it. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, yeah, okay. And is that it's Orwell's journey from what is this very selfish love of Psyche to a very selfless love. And there could uh, obviously a lot of Christian, I don't think it's an allegory, but a lot of Christian motifs here that are harder for me to pick up. So I'll just tell it as I, as I understand it. But um, there's a great scene after great torment on Orwell's part and Psyche's where she's really writing this whole book till we have faces as a complaint against the gods for taking Psyche from her. Psyche, Mm -hmm. her youngest sister was the love of her life and she was taken from her when Orwell was just trying to do good by getting her away from this potentially 
unseen force that she didn't trust for Psyche's love. But as she is making, and the whole book is a complaint against the gods, and by the end of it, she's sort of at this like tribunal where she's supposed to read this book that she just wrote that, and, and we, the reader, just read. And suddenly she realizes she's not saying what we just read. She's saying something new, which is basically like, you gods took her away from me. You took her away from me. And it's a very powerful scene where she says this and she realizes at the same time the reader does that she loved Psyche selfishly, that she was simply a manifestation of her own need. She was, and it's a tough pill to swallow in some ways because Orwell, as she's described, is the unpretty, abused girl. And you would sort of feel like, well, she's entitled to, to reach out for any kind of love she could find. But yet she's still punished because she's like, you, regardless of what your situation was, your abuse, your, abuse, your, your physical looks, your societal place, your love for Psyche was a selfish love. You didn't, you did not love her for her. You loved her or selflessly, you loved her because she was something you needed to love. And so you made a mistake by taking her away from Cupid and doing what you did was selfish and punish worthy. That's a big, that's a hard deal, I think. <laughs> and more and more proof is added to it. She has a relationship as a comrade when she's queen with a soldier who is by her side always. And he, she works him to death, basically. She never wants him to leave his side, even though he has children and a wife. And there's a scene where he, she go after he dies, she goes to his wife and the wife just says, basically, you killed him because he wouldn't ever say no to you as the queen. And you just selfishly kept him. And she, Orwell is just stunned beyond belief. Um, and there is a, a physical, interesting physical thing that happens that Orwell does. She decides to be veiled for her life before she becomes queen. She decides to wear a veil covering her face. And it's, you think at first, well, because she's so ugly, so-called, and this gives her a power of where people don't have to interface with her at all. She's just an entity that's unseen and can be extremely powerful. But um, what really turns out to be by the end of it is that she is really veiling herself to it's after Psyche goes to deny her, her real feelings, to de deny her real face, to, to deny her real um, culpability in Psyche leaving. She doesn't want to address it and she cuts herself off like that. And at the end, when she rips the veil off, she's revealing her face. And the Till We Have Faces title really refers to um, why, how would the gods ever want to because a lot of it is like, why are the gods doing this to me? And, mm -hmm. you know, the philosopher slave says to her, like, well, why would the gods want to interact with us face to face until we have faces ourselves? Meaning until we are real, our, re our real, real selves, we cannot interact with the god. And the other thing, which is a tough one, too, to understand is when she's at this tribunal and she's like, me, me, me. and it's it's realized that she, her selfish love of psyche was was the thing that destroyed all of this. Um, the answer, the God's answer is her question, meaning when you mm -hmm. say, why have you done this to me? That's the question and the answer. Do you understand what that means? No, I don't either. It's tough. But I when you think about it, it's sort of sort of like. When you ask the question why is this happening to me? And they say, that's the answer. It says, I think it lies in you. It doesn't lie in anything external. It lies in you to figure it out, to become self-aware. I mean, because the questioning is the answer. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds facile and trite, but it's, it's something you have to contemplate. Um, but it felt like when reading the book that it was some sense of when you get to the point where you're really raising your fist 
to the heavens, to the external world, like world, why are you doing this to me? That's mm-hmm. the beginning of your answer is that you have to, because it, 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 it ends there. You can't, you cannot expect an answer if you're not investigating your own problem. And I think the, um, the I did have a revelation when I, when I read it, that it was very powerful and I felt emotionally sort of enlivened and it, it sort of comes and goes now. I can grab it and not grab it when it made, I made me realize that that, that questioning is that you, she wasn't acknowledging her own selfishness. And, and I guess this could be a very Christian thing in that it's like, you're, you, you have to acknowledge your own sin or your own, um, we would say now biases or your own issues before you can actually even raise the question of why is this happening to me? Because it's happening in you. And there was sort of like a jolt of like, I was thinking of social media and I was thinking of the world in which we live, where how much of, of that is made up of I'm entitled. I am a good person. I am a worthy person. I deserve so much. I deserve love. And of course that, that sounds very, persuasive and i thought how few times do we see or hear like i am a bad person Mm -hmm. i am a biased person i am a selfish person i mean for someone to put that out there on social media let's say um which to this book is sort of this that you have to do that you have Mm -hmm. to say that to see see that about yourself to make it even more complicated and, and and hard to understand is that in some ways it's almost like then you'd say well all right so if i acknowledge all my horrible stuff then i'll be emotionally free and clear and and the gods will look favorably on me it's like not really because self-awareness is is not even enough in the book it's a gift that's given to you <laughs> it's something that it seems to be like you have to suffer for a lifetime before you can even be aware that you're being given a gift of selflessness and, and purity and all the divine feelings and definitions and that we've read about over the years. And yeah. it's a good right read, <laughs> you know, it's, it's um, tough though. How, how much of it uh, diverts from the original myth? Or is it like pretty close? Well, the trials that Psyche has put through after she sees Cupid are similar. Um, okay. It's much more psychologically in depth. And they, the, the difference was yeah. from the sister's point of view. And so Cupid and Psyche are very much off stage for a lot of it. And oh. it's it's um, Oral's sort of, ascendant ascendance to the queendom and her relationship with the soldier and her wars and her her actually goodness like she does she's a really good queen in that she frees slaves she wins wars the country is prosperous um but it has nothing to do with her inner soul um Mm -hmm. she still has a selfish angry love about psyche and the loss of her and still blames the gods um so she she can do good, but she's still not a fully divine person. She's not a, that's not the right word, a fully, uh, I don't know what the religious term would be, but like a redeemed individual or cleansed of sin um, until she realizes that she was the one at fault the whole way through. It was her own selfishness that devoured the people she said she loved. Um, it's a, there's a lot there. I mean, again, always, always asking the big questions, always reading the books with the big question. Um, C.S. Lewis is a, is pretty intense. I gotta say, um, I don't, you know, I almost, I, th- I think I even read somewhere that, um, some people originally even thought before they knew it was C.S. Lewis that it was written by a woman because the woman oh, really? is, mm-hmm. I mean, for all that, all the uh, issues I, I mentioned before that we would take issue with today, um, there is a, there is a full psychological portrait of this, this woman's inner life that seems very authentic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her, her journey to, uh, 
her journey to her soul. I did find the book series that um, is also like a retelling, which I, I'm kind of wondering to the connection between these retellings and like modern day fan fiction, if, if there is an overlap there. But um, the author I mentioned was uh, Katie Robert, not Katie Roberts. And it's the Dark Olympus series. And the first one is Neon Gods, which is the Persephone myth, I believe. Oh. Um, which is very popular. I feel like I've read so many Persephone retellings recently, like Laura Olympus. Um, and the the second book in the series is called Electric Idol. And I think that one is the Eros and Psyche one. Um, you said Katie Roberts? Katie Roberts without the S. Oh. I have there's I think there's a a big following of Katie Robert like a lot of fans Katie and this particular oh with two E's yeah so I know um, I'm the best person to like sell these books <laughs> I know yeah. I'm not like as much as a fan as some of uh, my colleagues some people that you know um, but I think each book in the series focuses on a different myth and it's like mostly based on the romantic relationships. I don't think it goes into so much of the inner thoughts. I think I have like my complaint about Electric Idol, which um, I, again, people I know love it, rave about it, thinks it's the best book ever. It is like, yeah, in the original myth is Eros, right? Is essentially Aphrodite's son. Yeah. And is his fixer. So uh, in Electric Idol, he is, in my opinion, essentially a murderer. <laughs> the fact that like, uh -huh. she has this romance. Uh, Eros is a murderer. Like, he kills the rivals of his mother, right? Well, I did. Uh, there have been myths told where Aphrodite and Eros, her son, have a very mm -hmm. intense relationship. And some people question, like, how far some poets would retell that story. Mm. Well, in this one, I don't know, in this modern-day electric idol, I don't think it, it, it's, well, it's intense enough that, like, he, she essentially orders him to kill people, and he does do so, and is about to kill Psyche, but doesn't, and then the romantic relationship forms, and for, for me, I'm just, like, I don't find that romantic to, like, be in love with a murderer, but I don't know, maybe it's a thing. Um, I mean that's a good that's a good point though because like we we touched on at the beginning is that when you start reading this book till we have faces I mean I I wrote a note saying something like I said before like wow it's like you know slavery and abuse and sexism like all in the first couple of pages that are not really you know when you're reading it these are not the issues he's going to be discussing really mm -hmm. um, they're just part of the world in which you're living which you're reading about and I was thinking how. In how they stand out when you're when you're reading it in terms of all the dialogue today about their own lives. So, I I hear you. Mm -hmm. But you that's so that's Katie Robert. Okay, she's more like a romance. I think so. Yes, like erotic romance. I think so. I think my biggest complaint about the books, and again not to diss all the fans out there because there are a lot of them it's just uh the world building is um i, I think it's it's missing some things i want if there is going to be this retelling of like the persephone myth and it's set in this kind of modern day underworld situation it i feel like it, it didn't really build that world for me you know and I read more like maybe some of her previous works where she was just contemporary romance um, but I feel like maybe the book that you suggested does do some of that in more interesting ways. Maybe I need to check that out instead. Yeah, I definitely think it's, it's definitely, uh, something worth reading for the ideas and, and for the f emotions it brings up. Um, and you mm -hmm. could certainly have questions about how it builds the world, but you can't deny that the world existed in some form like that. Mm -hmm. It did. It absolutely did. But um, whether somebody really wants to read that or not is another question. It does go mm -hmm. off in different directions. It really goes into the issues of the soul, <laughs> mm -hmm. of anyone's soul. Um, but that's not what you came here to discuss, Katie Robert. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I was going to say another thing, too, which was like my, I also 
when we're discussing or um, describing the book, you also made me think about like morality plays and stuff, especially the Cupids and or Eros and Psyche. I don't know which one is the correct name. Um, and the idea of like, it, I think when I first read it, it felt like it was a morality story in the sense of like not betraying your husbands. And it also reminded me a lot of like a, a like current modern day romance thriller movies where they're really about, you know, have you seen stuff like that? Like um, The Perfect Guy, Unforgettable, Obsession. <laughs> I know. There's a whole <laughs> subgenre of them. But uh, if you watch enough of them, you start to realize that the message is when the woman like strays outside of her marriage or hooks up with a guy like oh. a random stranger, it turns out that guy is obsessed with you, wants to kill you, things like that. And I think it says interesting things about maybe um, society and like what it means to be a woman and stuff like that. Anyways, I just I just feel like it's it's kind of an interesting reflection of that. And I wondered if some of that kind of morality stuff when it came to marriage and relationships also came out in this in your book. That's interesting. I never. It's funny. By the end of it, I never thought of. Orwell's issue as be as related to her gender. This seemed to be mm -hmm. completely a, to me at least when I was reading it, that this is any person at all. That's what was interesting mm -hmm. about it. I think why some people thought it was written by a woman because it it didn't seem to be like oh you're being punished because you're a woman. It was it it was she was punished because she was self selfish and unaware, mm -hmm. and therefore did didn't do really nice things because of her, her lack of awareness of her own self. Mm -hmm. And I'm always talking about like where we're culpable in our own relationships. And it seems to be the hardest thing. Maybe that's, that is why it's one of the big questions is that it's one of the hardest things to acknowledge where you've, where you've done damage. It's so, mm -hmm. it seems like much more easy or common to say I was a victim and certainly people are. I mean, it's not a one or the other, but it's sort of that personal thing about where and why that's important. I wonder, it seems very important to me. And, and now I wonder why, because it is painful. And I don't know what the result really is in terms of a non-religious view of it. If you do do that, are you freeing yourself? Or are you just destroying yourself? I mean, it could hurt destroy someone to realize I did a terrible thing and I didn't even think of it that way. I mean, ultimately it's your own decision though. I mean, that's, I was thinking about this on the way and it's like, sometimes I wish there were gods, you know, up there in some way that I could really say, okay, then if I really do this, then I will get your favor. But then part of the God thing is that it's not about quid pro quo. It's not about like, if I do this, I'll get eternal life. Mm -hmm. If I do this, or at least according to C.S. Lewis, it's not that. Um, not transactional. Right. It's not transactional. It's much deeper than that. That's why it's hard to grasp because it's very, when you start thinking about yourself, then you, you start realizing you're in that narrative of, okay, go, okay. If I do this, I, then I'll get that. There's one point in the book where Orwell is making just that decision about herself. She's like, all right, I get it. I'm, I'm selfish. I'm not going to do this anymore. And then she basically describes how in the first half hour of waking up, she's already snapped at the maid. She's already thrown something across the room at a, at a tribunal about a war. And she's like, I'm already losing my temper. I'm already getting crazy here. It's like, I can't even maintain this for like one half hour. And how real is that for us? Like when we try to change or, you know, that's why it's so hard to grasp. I mean, it's like with Anna and Levin, his story, when he comes to faith at the end. Um, it's, and the fact that I said before, it's not like something that if you do, you'll, you'll get, it's a gift to be given, but our, but our souls have so much pride. C.S. Lewis says, we find them, find that gift hard to accept. What does that mean? It's beautiful. I don't know. Maybe we, maybe the whole thing is just trying. Definitely better than the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, you would reckon. I don't even remember. I read that so long ago. Oh, yeah. It's, it's yeah, an ongoing journey. The journey of life. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that from? 
like any cartoon we grew up with. No, it's from a. Is it from Mario? Mm. The game. I think it's in a lot of things. Oh, okay. Is it a video game? I'm sure. That that sound. Do, 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 do. Like I'm laughing. <laughs> so what did you read, dear? So I read quite a few things um, because I was on vacation for a couple of weeks. So I had time to catch up on a lot of fun reading. And so I was just going to highlight a few of my like top hits from all the books that I read. A lot of comics, mostly, right? So I was going to recommend four very quickly. <laughs> um, uh, so a couple are upcoming, so they're not out yet. They're going to be out in the fall and a couple are ongoing comic book series so those you can pick up right so the ones that are coming out in the fall um i read this children's book called the flamingo a graphic novel chapter book by guo jing if i'm pronouncing that correctly um it's a really beautiful well done if you've seen uh her arts before i think what was the book that she wrote previously oh the only child which is a, a beautifully drawn picture book about uh, a young boy who gets lost and then goes on this kind of like magical journey and eventually finds um, uh, his way home oh sorry it's a, it's a little girl that gets lost and finds her way home and it's a it's an entirely wordless picture book uh this yeah. one is a graphic like novel owly. There. which one <laughs> like owly i don't know that For one children's graphic novel Owly about a little owl, and I thought it was so. Oh, cute. I, I, it up once I have to look it up. I was like, "It's so cute, Owly." I and know there's so many. I have not been like weirdly into picture books recently. I don't know why, um, but there's some really beautiful art that has been done, and this one is another one. I highly recommend it. Um, it's about a little girl who visits her grandmother, and then there's like this flamingo. But I think it's a great metaphor for like letting go of family members who they could, like immigrate or move to other places, and the way they come back and connect. Um, so that one's really well done, and that's going to be out in September. Uh, another one that I read was Frizzy by Clarabelle A. Ortega and Rose Boston Samra. And that one is, I would say, a middle grade to young adults graphic novel about a girl named Marlene who has like really frizzy hair and is kind of bullied for it, made fun of uh, because of her hair and wants to have good hair like her cousins, right? And then she kind of has to go on this journey of like self-acceptance and love and uh, figuring out her own hair. And she has some like great role models that help her through that process. But does um, she also acknowledge her own sadness? <laughs> like Orwell has to, when you said she... self-acceptance, I'm kidding. I think she does a little bit. I think she recognizes, she does do certain things that kind of defies her mother who wants her to have like so-called good hair because of her own history of being bullied and treated a certain way because her hair wasn't straight. And so I feel like that one was, that's a great book that's um, coming out in October from first seconds. And then the two comic book series I wanted to recommend that are currently ongoing. Uh, the first one is The Nice House on the Lake. I think volume one is out by James Tinian the fourth uh, and Alvaro Martinez Bueno. That one's kind of like a horror comic, right? Where a group of people are essentially invited to a house um, by their mutual friend, Walter. And then when they're at the house, they realize that they've been invited there for a reason. Um, the world is basically collapsing around them, um, but they've been chosen to be saved by Walter, oh. who appears to be maybe an alien. <laughs> and they have to kind of discover what that reason is. So this is just the first one. But it was like really interesting, very engaging. Uh, I think people, if they've read The Department of Truth, that uh, comic book series, I think would also really enjoy this one. And then the other one uh, series I was going to recommend was Once in Future. I think volumes one through four are out. That's by Karen Gillan and Dan Mora. And that one reminds me a lot of Fables. If people have uh, read that, I think it's 23, 22 to 23 volume um, comic book series where it integrates a lot of 
um, folklore and fables, like Little Red Riding Hood being one of the central ones. And it kind of retells that, which relates to your book. And this one deals with the um, Arthurian legends of King Arthur and, and the Knights of the Round Table. Um, set in present day and that legend starts to kind of coalesce in a lot of different ways and then um, uh, an older woman and her grandson has to go and try to like defeat King Arthur and all this other stuff and it's, it's really interesting I think it's really well done the art is a lot of fun there's a lot of great action in it so yeah highly recommend that one those are my four they're all children middle grade graphic novels no two are adults the last two oh, once in the okay. future and um oh. what was it the nice house on the lake are two adults definitely adults <laughs> they're not well wow. i mean look some older teen if they want to read it it's probably fine but yeah i was just thinking of the uh i was when you were talking i was thinking oh i should read more graphic novels and then i immediately flashed on one i had read god i think this was left two years ago, maybe. Um, and what? It was based on Beowulf. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, Beowulf and Once in the Future. Oh, really? Okay. Because I just... Beowulf do? shows up. Grendel shows up. Oh, I <laughs> All sorts of things are back to the, to the classics. I don't... I just mm -hmm. I crawl back. I want to... Mm -hmm. I guess I like... I do like reading and um, thinking about works that were written many, 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 many years ago to see what seems to still persist, like the, the same questions, the same issues, the same behaviors. I, I somehow I need confirmation that we're, that we're as human then as we are now. And also what seems to be an eternal problem for human beings, even though I suddenly feel spent from like the idea of it, because it's like, you know, I was all ready to, uh, to read a rom-com. Rom because mm -hmm. I keep saying, I have to read something lighter. And then that colleague was like, oh, C.S. Lewis wrote a retelling of Cupid and Psyche. I was like, that's it. I have to read. <laughs> Wait, I want to go back to your comment where you said the, what did you say? The Not, thing about like humanity, that the questions that we're always trying to yeah. answer. No, I was thinking about that for a couple of the other books, like especially I think young adult books, like there's always this question of like self-identity, acceptance within society that it yeah. always seeks to answer. And I think that's what defines a lot of um, young adult books. And I think in The Flamingo, I think the idea of um, connection in some way, right? And that one was a generational connection um, or communication or finding ways to communicate. You know, it was an interesting question or interesting thought that you brought up. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I was just thinking when you just said like connection and identity and, and that's all important, of course. And I was thinking, well, what do I want? Like, what am I, then, then what am I reading these things for? And I think the first thing that popped in my head is like, I want a sense of freedom, mm -hmm. a feeling of freedom. And it's not like, don't bother me or don't, legislate me even though of course that's the day-to-day -day reality and we need to deal, deal with that it was sort of like a, a soul freedom that my soul feels free that it doesn't feel um and encumbered or in stuff in pain mm -hmm. and i guess uh i feel like reading these a lot of it says it's it's up it's up to you i mean it's up to oneself mm -hmm. but i was like i said before i was thinking about the messages of this book, at least as I understood them or tried to, trying to understand. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you do this journey and it's it's all well and good, but everybody else has to do it too, in, in some ways, because I was thinking about, you know, how you can feel like I analyze your own badness, so-called, your own selfishness. And then that could free you, but you, you still have to fight and activize in the world to attain rights in our culture. Like our, our culture still exists. Our society still exists. And it doesn't mean just because you free yourself, society will see you as a, an autonomous individual or as a, you have to still, I don't know what I'm saying. I, I started off trying to say something and I lost it. Um, I, I think that's interesting. I, I, to relate it to one of the books I brought up, 
in, in a, I think, more superficial way, doesn't engage with it as deeply, I think, as we are engaging with it. But in the series, Once in the Future, I think there is a lot about how the past kind of rears its head through these legends, right? Yeah. And because the legends come up, people are um, almost like forced to take on certain roles. Like the grandson is Percival, one of the knights, but basically that becomes his defining role. And then people are going along these paths because the legend has dictated that that's what happens. But they're also trying to like break out of it in different ways, like to break free of the past so they can go forward into the future and stuff. But I know maybe that's one that you would enjoy. Have some lighthearted reading. Yeah. I think what I got bollocks up about is that it's actually really what the book I read is about is about, is about soul freedom like soul soul suffering and the lack of it and not to do with um societal mores and and Mm. rules um because she was the queen and she she ran the country very well but yet in her own soul she was still suffering but personal salvation i guess Mm -hmm. um and then there's a whole other world out there as well but i guess the core of it is that big question of personal salvation she found that at the end she dies. <laughs> okay, never mind. But she, no, dies. I, but she dies, you know, with that mm-hmm. revelation known that she was mm-hmm. selfish and she abases herself to, to psyche and and um, realizes that she always hated the gods, but it was herself that she had to. She had to counsel and come to terms with. Um, that's why it seems like it's almost like the message is it's a lifelong mm-hmm. journey of self-discovery and that it might never end or it might just end at the moment of of death it's it i don't you know that it's it would be interesting to re- hear a theologian's view of this book you know mm-hmm. like someone who is conversant in christian in you know tenets you know i mean the idea of like soul freedom it i think that's a really interesting idea and it made me think if i've ever read a book that actually has that where maybe they acquire it by the end um and i don't think i have really i feel like people always get kind of dragged down into i don't know something else that'd be interesting to read a book where it does that effectively and i'm not counting like memoirs or biographies where or no not biographies but more like autobiographies where people kind of sort of suggest that but it doesn't really feel believable because Right. Well, that's a good point because that's such a narrative of memoirs and autobiographies that, you know, you you write them when you actually can end with them saying, and I realize that blah, blah, blah. Now I'm a full person. I'm a full, fully person. Then, you know, two years later, that person was like arrested for spousal abuse or something. (laughs) But um, uh, I just lost the thread, but that was a, you just, about, I forgot. I got caught up in that. Well, I think what what you were saying about how like it, it seems like it's a it's a never ending journey where like it doesn't yeah. really happen that kind of freedom I guess unless and that's like in the book or something. But um, those are the books I have read where it does really resonate where people are trying to search for that and they it okay. is they never truly find it um but it is that journey that becomes really interesting and resonance because i think people are going through that right you know i mean it's that it's what i can equate it with is that you know that that trope of when someone comes to faith or someone has a conversion and they're just like christ is the way or they or they Mm -hmm. are they seem so completely um suffused with this revelation of faith mm-hmm. and i was trying to think of that in in so-called layman's terms like what if someone doesn't want to say christ or say god or say these things what would they say and what would that feeling be equatable to because we know that we know that type like you know of someone who is suddenly like does seem to have radically changed and re- in terms of their self you know, self view and um, lack of suffering and that they've discovered religion of some sort Um, without using those words. I I mean, I'm always about like, what's the word right word for it. 
Um, and it was an interesting self-conversation because I was like, I don't know. I don't know what that would be. I mean, I think, you know, without using terms like gods or, you know, Aphrodite or Jupiter and Christ, I mean, like, what would it be? Like, it's something external. And I was trying to think about that, like, because I, in some ways I think like that externality is in, is really in your head, is within our human heads. It's just suddenly the world sometimes seems so so incredibly beautiful or so incredibly difficult that we feel like it has to be outside of us. It just has to be. And maybe it's this. He's <laughs> sorry. <laughs> wow. Well, we're not going to uh, solve that. I'd, I'd love to hear people's comments on this, actually, if they've read this book, too. I mean, do we have a tarot deck? Maybe the tarot deck. Oh, I don't. Do you have yours? Magic 8-Ball. We can also get that. I didn't read any quotes from this book either, which I wanted to do, but it's too late for that. People just have to read it. But there's C.S. Lewis is just one heck of a writer as well. That's for sure. So much, so much in here, like little nuggets. Okay. Tarot deck. Okay. Really like feel the aura, Chrissy, of because this card is gonna am give I, us all the answers am, to the am universe. I picking right? for you guys? Yes, this is going to relate yeah. to what we both read. Our, oh boy, our yes. books about journeys and souls and how we can oh boy <laughs> free ourselves from suffering or no or, pressure. Are we doomed <laughs> to never find the answer? The big questions. Okay, You're going to answer all the big questions. In other words, the sun. The, the sun. sun. Oh, I've never heard of such a thing. Oh, it's a new tarot deck. It's so cute. I love the tarot deck. Oh. It's called the Cosmic Cycles deck. It, was it upright or reverse? It was upright. Okay. Okay. So it's positivity, fun, warmth, success, vitality. The sun tarot card radiates with optimism and positivity. A large bright sun shines in the sky, representing the source of all life on Earth. Underneath four sunflowers grow tall above a brick wall, representing the four suits of the minor arcana and the four elements. Oh, this is just a description of the card. Hold on. Right. Uh, okay. <laughs> the sun represents success, radiance, and abundance. The sun gives you strength and tells you that no matter where you go or what you do, your positive and radiant energy will follow you and bring you happiness and joy. People are drawn to you because you can always see the bright side and bring such warmth into other people's lives. This beautiful warm energy is what will get you through the tough times and help you succeed. You are also in a position where you can share your highest qualities and achievements with others, radiate who you are and what you stand for, shine your love on those you care about. And if you're going through a difficult time, the sun brings you the message you have been waiting for, that things will get better, a lot better. Through the challenges along your path, you discovered who you are and why you're here. Now you are full of energy and zeal for the future and can already perceive success and abundance flowing to you. You are brimming with confidence because you know everything will work out. It always does. Life is good. I don't. This seems to be the least accurate card we've gone. Well, well, you know, you just took me on a journey because when you first started really? reading the definition, I was like, forget it. That's nothing to do with it. But then when you finished, I realized it directly relates to reopening of my library. And what I was contemplating after reading the C.S. Lewis book is that uh -huh. sometimes working in the library is so stressful, at least for me in terms of planning and all the issues. And I have to think, I'm thinking about the capital planning aspect, like all the mm -hmm. room, the furniture, the, the integrity of the walls, like then the books that have to go on back on the shelves and the staff, which people are, the best and worst thing about life in some ways that have to come back and am I fair to them? And suddenly it's like overwhelming. And I was thinking about that. Like, do I have an ego problem with what I do as a librarian? Like, and this question can go out to all librarians and especially all people in service. It's like, why are you doing this? Is it because of an ego manifestation? I was like, do you do it because you get such praise when it works or you get such thanks mm. when it works? Are you doing it selfishly? Are you doing it selfless, selflessly? And I was like, I wonder, I know there's ego in there. there for all of us, there is, for sure. But mm -hmm. um, in terms of alleviating that suffering, sometimes it's just so hard to get through, you know, a bureaucratic, lovely, but bureaucratic institution, <laughs> like a lot of lots are. Um, and all the things I just said, like, I wonder if I... I was walking on the street outside the library and somebody, I heard my name and I immediately clenched up 
because I thought, oh, a complaint's coming, like, or a question about mm -hmm. it that I can't answer, or some problem about the reopening. And then I, after five minutes in the conversation, I was fully relaxed and enjoying it. But I, the, what, the, what I'm saying is, why is that my immediate reaction? Mm. And I think it is something to do with selfishness in that I feel like I have to be the, 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 mm -hmm. the God of love and sun to everyone. And I can't be, and that makes me angry in a split second. Like I can't be that, or I can't mm -hmm. feel it. So when you were like enthusiasm going, like going on with, you know, vitality and you're a source of this, I was like, I want to be that for myself too. Mm -hmm. Um, you know what I mean? Did I just make sense? Mm -hmm. I guess why we do what we do in life and as a librarian in service, like it's technically sounds like it should be very beautiful and a very um, always lovely thing, but sometimes it hurts. And I wonder why, I mean, I can think about it more, but I think the core of it is a sense of ego. I think our sense of selfishness that, you want something out of it that shouldn't be there. Then again, self-revelation is a gift. You can't just do it quid pro quo with the gods. So I don't know what to do. I just have to do the best I can. Well, the card goes on to say the sun connects you to your power base, not fear-driven egotistical power, but the abundance inner energy radiating through you right now. All right. You'll sense it in your solar plexus chakra which i don't know where that is calling you to express yourself authentically and be fully present in the world around you you have what others want which i believe and are being asked to radiate your energy and your gifts out into the world in a big way tap into your power and use your divine will to express that power in positive ways mm -hmm. okay use use your power frank for good so Just I, think this our, once. I think our session's over. Um, thank <laughs> you. We'll see you next week. Uh, therapy with Crystal and Frank or therapy <laughs> for Frank with Crystal. <laughs> uh, and the produce, mean, producer. What? What? I, I was just going to say, I think you're like in a tough situation because like Jeff's the market is such a like institution in in that area and you're so well known and I feel like it just like you know, it feels like everything like reflects onto you, but maybe you should like try to disassociate that. I don't know. Mm. I feel like you're very tied into that library in like a great way, but also sometimes in a harmful way. Right? I mean, it's yeah. the same thing where, you know, people say practice gratitude or kindness. Mm -hmm. It's like we have to say that because even though we know we have it so good, and I do. Mm -hmm. Yet, why is it always not good? Like, why does he sometimes suffer? And it's interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's also because it's so, like, tied into the neighborhood. Like, it, it feels like the pressure increases, too. So, like, you're, you're dealing with a lot of pressure of expectations and stuff versus, like, a library that nobody knows about or, you know, you don't have that. It's almost like psyche, you know, instead of believing in your own goodness, just being goodness. You know mm -hmm. what it is like when you sort of say, like, I know I'm doing a good job, so yeah. I don't have to worry about that. Like, but mm -hmm. then we do. And it's like, I wish I could just be it rather than think about it. You mm -hmm. know, there's yeah. something in that statement, actually. It's like, that's in that regard, I can see how it's something that's given to you rather than something you can make happen. Like, just to be something, it does feel external in some way. It's like it has to come. But external, oh, all right, we got to stop. External still well, I thought we had stopped head, a while ago. It feels like it's something outside of you, but it's not uh -huh. really. It's inside your own head. Um, it's almost offering up to a higher power, maybe inside your own brain um, or not. All right, we got to stop. Maybe for one of our guests, we can have a therapist <laughs> to help us through all our issues. Oh. I actually feel like I do need to get a therapist. I mean, it's, it's weird because I've been posting on the Instagram and uh, at Jefferson Market and, and a lot of the visuals that I've been posting, people are commenting mm -hmm. like, this is sort of like a horror movie. Because I And I was wondering <laughs> if I'm sort of feeling slightly like 
anxious and you know mm-hmm. emotional about the library and reopening and all that mm-hmm. stuff just highly emotional. you know my I brought up before my theory about um, horror movies is like it is that introduction of chaos that is the thing that unsettles people and not so much like the killing, the murder, or anything of that. It's like yeah. a chaotic vibe. Yeah. And yeah, also, right. like, you know, boundaries destroyed, like boundaries that we st- sort of trust are, are removed, mm-hmm. um, which is a big thing, like in terms of the gods, too. Like, what are the boundaries in which I can behave? Um, or which every all of us should behave, and those are broken down. Tell us what we're going to read together. But oh, so for our what June? Which date was it? June second. Uh, for June second, we are going to be reading "The Light from Uncommon Stars" by was it Rika Aoki? Yep. And that one's a sci-fi book. Uh, has I think garnered a lot of buzz awards um, and was on NYPL's top ten list of uh, last year. So very excited to read it, and I've heard only good things about it from those that. Um, it's considered sci-fi ish. Uh, well, there sci-fi is a spaceship yes. on the cover, I think. So I'm gonna say yes. <laughs> well, it's a Hugo Award finalist. Okay. Mm-hmm among other awards. Um, okay, a light, light from Uncommon Stars by Raika Aoki. June 2nd, we'll be discussing that. So if you want to read along, please do. Thank you, Crystal, for that recommendation. And I will look forward to reading it. Thanks for listening to The Librarian is In, a podcast by the New York Public Library. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, or send us an email at podcasts at nypl.org. For more information about the New York Public Library, please visit nypl.org. We are produced by Christine Farrell. Your hosts are Frank Hilarious and Crystal Chen.